thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty. And I'm glad to have you with me today, because today I I want to, well, I guess, uh, confess some of my own misunderstandings about this sphere of law in which I was trained and in which I've worked for all of my adult life, literally, since I got out of law school in 1983, 40 years ago. And in many ways, um, this will sort of be a Bible study today. So if you have a place where you can write down some verses, you might want to do so. And what led to today's podcast is well it's been it's something that's been going on in my mind for a while now and was really prompted by the call for a special legislative session by Tennessee's governor to address um issues of gun violence arising out of uh, the murder of some school children at the Covenant School here in Nashville, a Christian school. What I want to talk about today is that I think we expect from our laws more than what God's Word tells us law can deliver. I'm reminded in this regard of the words of the uh, the 17th century English theologian John Owen. I think it was in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, where he made this statement, where God hath put an impossibility upon anything, it is in vain for men to attempt it. So when God says stop, uh, it's in vain for us to go, or vice versa, just to put it simply. But anytime we try to do with the law something that God has said it can't do, then our efforts are in vain. And going back to the passages in 1 Corinthians that we've talked about in previous episode, our work will be destroyed, even if we're saved. And our labor in the Lord is not really in the Lord then, and it will be in vain. So what can we expect from the law? How should we as Christians think of law? So I want to begin today with Genesis 3.19. I'm going to read several verses during the day and just comment on them and come to the conclusion about what we, we really can expect the law to have the power to do. So Galatians 3.19, Paul writes, what purpose then does the law serve? Now, this is in the context of uh, Judaizers. Christians, uh, let's say, who who are still saying that you need to comply with the dietary laws. And Peter even got caught up in it, remember, and, and Paul rebuked him. And so Paul is saying, well, what then purpose does the law serve? This is what he says. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now, 
That's interesting that it refers to a promise singularly there. But what Paul does in that statement is that he really wipes out the whole mosaic tradition in terms of how we approach and can come to God. We don't come to God through all of the rituals that were in the Mosaic law. We now have, as it says in Hebrews, the the permanent, the enduring, the eternal sacrifice that is in Jesus Christ. But I would add here, that's not all that can be said about law and its place in God's cosmos and how we should think of it from the standpoint of a biblical cosmology. So he's he's there dismantling the Mosaic law in terms of how we come to approach God. But he adds this in verses 23 and 24. Before faith came, and he doesn't mean faith in general, because it, he's already made it clear that Abraham was righteous, declared righteous because of his faith. We have the litany of the heroes of faith in the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, but it's the faith in the one to whom the promise was made, which was Christ. He says, so before this faith in Christ came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And of course, what he's referring to here is that there was a certain aspect of faith that was revealed. And we see that, again, list of uh, heroes of the faith in, in Hebrews 11. But there was in Christ the full revelation of that faith and what that faith was in and the nature of that faith, which is why he says in the very next sentence, therefore, the law, the Mosaical law, was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But here I want to add something because I think it's been lost about this law, the Mosaical law that was to tutor us, to point us to the need for a a high priest and a sacrifice that we wouldn't have to offer continually. You know, he talks about that again in Hebrews. But there was a corporate aspect to this law as well, that in our pietism of today, we forget. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do so in the land, whether you go to possess it. Keep, therefore, and do them. And here's the reason, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So the law had a corporate purpose and the keeping of it corporately was to demonstrate a nation that has been discipled by God that other nations would look at and say, wow. You are a wise and understanding people. And and then he continues to say, for think about it, Israel. This is what he's getting ready to say. For think about it. What nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? 
And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? And he was setting forth then the case law that that developed out of the Ten Commandments. Okay? And the application of the Ten Commandments to different and other situations. So it may not have been a murder, but it may have been a battery or a maiming. So that's the law as well. And he's saying, when my people, as a people, understand this law, others will look to them and you will, as a nation, bear witness. And so discipling the nations has a real aspect to it that's not limited just to individual piety. And, of course, in Proverbs we read, righteousness exalts a nation. So there was a purpose of law that was ultimately pointing to Christ, but we have to understand the nature and the purpose of that law in relation to all things. So we read in Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now this is in the section where Paul has just finished explaining God's election in chapter 9. And, and then he's going to move in 10 to how the Gentiles were coming in and God will bring back in um, the ethnic Jews, and he closes with the doxology in Romans eleven thirty six 36, uh, and the verses that precede it. But anyway, he's saying here, my heart and my prayer is that Israel be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, why was it not according to knowledge? Well, I think the answer to that is found in Galatians 3.21, which is interposed between the other verses in Galatians we just read. And there Paul writes, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. In other words, the law cannot impart life. Law has no life in it. And and thus law makes no provision for and provides no means for keeping what it demands. Here are these righteous laws, and the point was, I can't keep them. Even when I think I'm keeping them, like the rich young ruler, I'm not keeping them because my devotion to God, my love for God, the, the, the primacy of God in all things, well, no, I'm not going to give away everything that I have and follow Jesus. Anyone who I said. But notice what this verse is telling us, that we need what the promises of God were about. It was about giving us the kind of life we needed to keep the wise and righteous commands of God. And indeed, Paul continues in this passage that we've just been reading, 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Now, there's another sentence that follows that, and I want to come back to it. But let's make sure we understand what he's saying here. The law is a standard, but the problem is we don't have the kind of life that is needed to measure up to, to conform ourselves to that law. And that's what they didn't know. They had a zeal, but it was not according to the knowledge that the law was pointing to something they The law didn't have, and they didn't have, which was the life that was necessary, the covenant relationship with God that was necessary to keep the law of God. And then Paul adds this verse to those we were reading in Romans 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I think there are two senses in which Christ is the end of the law. First, he is an end in the sense that all the law of coming to God and being a friend of God was pointing to Christ. In other words, the mosaical worship and the faith that it called forth reached its terminal point in Christ. There's no further revelation that would come from the law other than that revelation which we have in Jesus Christ. And, of course, we see that in Hebrews chapter 1 in verses 1 through 3. And Paul's saying that in Colossians chapter 2, that it's in the revelation of God and his Son that we find hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, therefore, Joseph Smith and Muhammad cannot be correct and the Bible be correct. They can't be. Because this is the final revelation of God. Everything that had preceded was pointing to Christ. He's now here. There is no further revelation of the truth about God than we need, than what we have and what's been revealed in the Scripture, which is why we're constantly being exhorted to come to the knowledge of God and the Son of God Because therein we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and the life we need to keep the law. The second sense, I believe, in which Paul says that Christ is the end of the law is that in him all the righteousness to which the law was pointing, that it was tutoring us toward it, that that was exposing to us that we could not keep, All that righteousness, faith in the righteousness of God that's in Christ, that's applied to us by the Holy Spirit, is fulfilled in Christ. And so, for example, consider the exchange between John the Baptist and Jesus when Jesus came to be baptized. It says here in Matthew chapter 3, 14 and 15, And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that word fulfill there is an important word, and I'm going to come back to it. But let's look at a second instance in which this is also being said. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Same word as in the previous verse in Matthew 3. 
it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then we come to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12, where the Apostle Paul is writing about Epaphras, who he says is a bondservant, and he's greeting them, and describes him this way, as always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect, there's the word teleos, which is the word end. It's the same word that is used when it says Christ is the end, the teleos of the law. And Paul writes, and complete, that you may stand perfect, teleos, you've reached the end, and complete. The word that's translated there, complete, is the same word that was used when speaking of fulfilling all righteousness, fulfilling the law. Now, here's what bothers me about what I see going on among our policy people, and I confess to you, it's true of me. And, and it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. That's the end of everything, faith working by love. But there it is, a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle, which is the word there meaning empty, vain, pointless, useless, talk. And then he describes who these empty, vain, useless talkers are. They are people desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So this sounds, again, a little bit like they had a zeal for God, but without knowledge. Desiring to be teachers of the law, we want to teach the law. We have Christian politicians that want to help make the law, right? But they don't understand what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, this goes back to some of what we've said in previous episodes about the law and is the law good because it is the law because it came through a certain process because the majority voted for it because it accords with reason you remember all those discussions we had about uh, author left's law review article in the duke law journal unspeakable ethics unnatural law well he's saying here the law is good if you use it lawfully so there is a way to use law unlawfully and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. What does that look like? Because that's what's bugging me about this upcoming special session and what we think or hope it will accomplish. Now, after he says this about the law is good if one uses it lawfully, there are two other verses that I'm going to skip for a moment and, and go to the third verse from there which is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So now let's read that together. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Law must be used 
according to the gospel, according to the word of God, to the purpose of God. Now, here's, here's the thing that's been bothering me about this special session. I believe we have many Christians and politicians who believe that if we can pass certain laws, we will create a certain society. That resident in law is some kind of power, like the natural laws of gravity, let's say, or entropy, or motion. That, that if you just enact these laws, they're going to change and shape society, and they're going to make us more righteous as a people. And that's where I think we just got it all wrong, and I had it all wrong, thinking if I can pass a law about marriage, if I can pass a law about abortion, if I can prevent a drag queen show, if I can do this or that, then, then that will produce righteousness. But that, my friends, is using the law unlawfully, not using it lawfully. Because nowhere in Scripture does it ever say the law has any power. In fact, if God did not give us a law that could impart life, the life we need, the life that would allow us to become righteous and operate on us like gravity to make us righteous, then God would have given it. But he said, there isn't any such law. And if we think that we can create laws that will do what needs to be done to create a better society, we're giving law a power it does not have, and it's a vain act. And what we're actually denying is that what we need is the power of God by his Holy Spirit working in us to make us better people so that we then will have righteous laws. The laws will not make us righteous. We have righteous laws because we are righteous. So if our laws are unrighteous, it should be a telltale sign that we as a people are unrighteous. And when we as Christians think we can use the law to make us righteous, we're not even acting Christianly. We're operating in the wrong cosmos. That's not the way God's law or law operates. Now, uh, quickly, I want to close here with, well, what power does the law have? Does it matter? then if it has no power. We find an answer to that, I believe, in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 16, where he says this, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He's not saying we need to treat ourselves as if we don't live here and not care about what's going on around us. Just be pious. No. I am an alien and a stranger in this world because this world has been under the power of the devil. And Jesus, it says in 1 John 3, came to destroy the works of the devil. And, and we as Christians have been transferred to a new kingdom. So while I am here living under unrighteous laws, I am an alien and a stranger. Because in my kingdom, there wouldn't be those kinds of laws. And when I say my kingdom, I don't mean mine, but in the kingdom in which I now live, where Jesus is the king, who has all power and all authority and came to destroy the works of the devil. We've lost even that optimism or that expectation. But anyway, I'll move on. 
He says, so that your conduct will be honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the days of visitation. Now, I'm not going to get into what that's referring to there. But there will be a day when those who come before Christ, and it will be everyone, either in this life or at the final judgment, will confess that, whoa, those were good works that glorify God. But then he adds a therefore here. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him. Now, here's the important point for today. For the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. There is the purpose of the law to punish evil doers. Now, law does help us order our affairs so we all drive on the correct or right side of the law. But in terms of the power of the law to do something, it punishes evildoers. That's a proper use of the law. And it has the power to do that because the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. Romans chapter 13. Now let's go back to the verses I skipped in the passage from First um, Timothy. And these are what they say. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, this is what I left out. That the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. That is the use of law that is, as he then said, is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Law is added because of transgressions to make the transgressions seem even worse than they otherwise would be, revealing our need for righteousness and a life that we don't have. And unfortunately, we have even perverted this aspect of the law and its power in this way. And I'm going to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book called The Problem of Pain. He writes this, some enlightened people would like to banish all conceptions of retribution or desert from their theory of punishment and place its value wholly in the deterrence of others or the reform of the criminal himself. Now notice we've gone from penal institutions to correctional facilities. You see what's happened? We're not punishing you punish the evildoer, isn't that exactly what First Peter was saying, right? For the punishment of evildoers? No, no, we're, we're using this to deter other people, and certainly there is a deterrent aspect, but not just deterrence, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, and certainly not to rehabilitate, though that may also happen. But it's not the goal of the law, nor the power of the law, which is to punish evildoers. And he goes on and says this. 
These enlightened persons do not see that by so doing they render all punishment unjust. What can be more immoral than to inflict suffering on me for the sake of deterring others if I do not deserve it? And if I do deserve it, you're admitting the claim of retribution. This is a punishment. It's retribution. And what can be more outrageous than to catch me and submit me to a disagreeable process of moral improvement without my consent, unless, once more, I deserve it? You see, we have, we have removed the sense of retribution, of desert, of punishment from the law in the one place that God's word says the law would have a power. And we try to use the law to make us good, which is why we now have correctional institutions, right? Instead of penal ones. So I guess I'm coming to the conclusion that for too long I have thought, and I think too many still think, that if we can just pass a law to stop the drag show, stop the transgender procedures, stop abortion, that 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 law will have a power to do more than what God's word says law can do. And we thereby really deny the active presence and power of God to bring about righteousness and thereby exalt a nation. And we seek to produce a righteousness of our own according to laws that have no life in them. Well, I'm going to end there for today, and I look forward to what I'm going to be covering next week. And I hope you'll join me for that episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.